0: there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program, so please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing, or pop on some headphones, and that way no one can get offended but you.
1: I I want these things to blow up. It's great. I'm a comedian, not a journalist. I don't need to make
2: friends. I'm never in the business of taking down a sacred cow. I'm never in the business of tearing someone down because of the tall poppy syndrome.
3: Often it'll just be one journo who's got a particular interest in, a, in an area and they just turn their attention to it for a little bit longer than usual and something catches their eye and they decide to look at it closely.
0: Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Mudgee Readers Festival. This session is Walkley Award-winning stories. Supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales. Produced by Kel Butler and Pamela Cook from the Rights for Women podcast.
4: Welcome. It's great to have a good intimate crowd to talk with our panel today. Our discussion today will talk a bit about the unearthing of news and the dissection of news. It's an interesting time in the media landscape. The word fake news is a word that is being thrown around a lot at the moment. It is charged with making sure that some journalists are kept on their feet, but in others it is quite an insult as well. So in the world where a term is being bandied around, how do you find stories? How do you pluck a string that brings together a story of great public interest and, of course, one that may bring out a result? We'll discuss some of the stories today that our panel have been involved with and even their role, large and small, in causing change as well. Our first panelist for today is Caroline Overing.
2: Carol- <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: Caroline has won a twice Walkley Award winner for extraordinary stories on a Jordanian American Australian author, Norma Curry, and also the unbelievable details of the Australian wheat scandal. Her novels uh, include one to be released this weekend. Or I think it's here. It is, it's here. It I'm is told it's here. I'm told that
2: Mudgy gets it first, which, which is ones, amazing. The
4: ones you trust. And, uh, of course, a number of other stories along the way. James Colley. When I spoke to James before, we were discussing that we have two Walkley Award winners. and James is due. He's due. Uh, he's uh, ready in, in the best way. Walkley Award Uh, Nominated satirist, um, author of Two Right Politically Incorrect Opinions, and also a writer with a number of programmes with ABC Television and SBS Television, which will delve into the world of satire and its place with a younger generation in storytelling. If you could please welcome James. And Kate Wilde, former and probably once again an ABC employee. We had the secret handshake before. (laughs) Kate has been involved in a number of Walkley award-winning stories, talking on everything from the Arctic Circle to uh, the treatment of Aboriginal people inside incarceration. She has also won a Logie for her role in Australian television programs and Walkleys for programs like Four Corners and Australian Story. Her most recent story, Elijah Holcomb, talks of the police shooting in country New South Wales in Armidale. You're welcome, Kate Waugh. So, to our panel, Caroline, first of all, if you were to nominate a broken story that mattered over the past 12 months, what would you say is a story that mattered?
2: Well, um, I I work for the Australian newspaper, obviously, as well as writing the novels. I'm the associate editor there. And I always think that everybody else's work is better than my own, which is a healthy place to be when you're a journalist because it keeps you nice and competitive. Um, I think uh, two of the most important stories that I've seen covered this year, both come from The Australian. Um, the first of those was the podcast series by Dan Box into the missing three Aboriginal children from Barraville, which I thought was outstanding journalism. A real, So many reporters had had a go at that yarn. Um, the Women's Weekly had had a go at that yarn when I was there. Four Corners had had a go, Australian Story had had a go, but no one did it quite like Dan Box. Um, in going back to Barraville and then getting the accused to call him at the office and explain his side of the story, which was the first time that had happened. And now, of course, we've seen that police are looking at whether or not they can charge somebody with that crime. And the second, um, the other, the flip side of that, if you will, is the podcast that you're hearing about now, which is called The Teacher's Pet, which is my, coll- my colleague again, um, Headley Thomas. It's number one in the United States, in the UK, here in Australia. So the whole world is, if not watching, then definitely listening um, to this podcast series which involves the disappearance of a teacher from uh, sorry of, of a, the wife of a teacher from northern New South Wales and why no charge was ever laid because of course it's impossible to imagine now that somebody's wife could go missing and and nobody would ever inquire into it I think they've both been amazing use of multi-platform journalism and amazing use of the old the old skills of journalism on display as well
4: James, what about yourself? The past twelve months, what what story broken, or, or perhaps hmm. story timeline has has perhaps changed the way that we are thinking about story?
1: I find that a very interesting question because I uh, am a satirist by trade, so I kind of enter this differently. The real real game changing satirical story over the last month was uh, the zoo. That uh, painted a mule to look like a zebra. <laughs> um, that's what really shook the comedic world up. <laughs> um, personally, I like. I am um, fascinated by uh, the the human stories within um, within our political systems, particularly because uh, when you're doing comedy, you need the people humanised to some degree. You have to consider that, and so. Uh, as a, uh, without pointing to a specific story, just as an agent of chaos, which I presume any satirist worth their salt needs to be, I've enjoyed the massive messes. Oh, I've dined out on Barnaby. <laughs> oh, my God. I, as soon as that happened, I'm like, oh, cool, I'll get a couple of weeks off. I can just coast in with this one and it will be fine.
4: Can I ask uh, the Barnaby Joyce one as a satirist? Uh, finding the line is, mm-hmm. is an interesting one. Uh, The story itself presents many humorous elements, of which Barnaby has uh, presented as well. But there are some human elements
1: behind Mm -hmm. it. Where's the line? Well, you have to understand the purpose behind your joke. A lot of people, um, when talking about comedy, will try and dismiss something that was hurtful as saying it's just a joke. Whereas I don't think that would work for any other art form. You wouldn't transfer and like you couldn't paint something awful and they'd say, "Well, it's just a painting. Let's not read into what it's a painting of." Uh, and I think you have to do that with comedy in the same way. You have to understand that what you're focusing on with your joke or how you're forming your point, you have to make sure you have a lot of power here. You are in some ways like shame or making something funny. And that is uh, like making something laughable is a powerful tool. So you have to look at where you're directing that in the way that you direct any of your attention. So I think the line is making sure it's it's very simple, like grade soccer, rule of you're playing the ball, that you care about the issue, the hypocrisy. I like um Barnaby as an example, that story continues to be full of joy from from my perspective because of the shameless selling. Mm. Like that's what's interesting. It's that I demand privacy aside from my book, podcast <laughs> and TV series. <laughs> that's why that's fun.
4: Kate, for you the past 12 months?
3: Oh, I would I would elect Barnaby for on one hand, in terms of a story that's been broken because it's it was one of those stories that you know lots of people, I'm sure possibly even possibly even people in this audience, people sort of knew about it. people knew about it on the streets of Tamworth, people knew about it in the districts, people in in the press galleries knew about it, but nobody quite knew when was the okay time to break the story. And watching that um, sort of, self-examination by the media after the story was broken and the back and forth about whether it was the right time and the right way to break it and then watching Barnaby's reaction and the way that that opened up our whole, it sort of peeled back another skin of how politics works and how power works and how we all feel about it as a community. And I think, and then there's, there's there's threads of sexism in it, there's threads of you know, that age-old story of the older man dumping his long-suffering wife and going for a younger woman. There are so many social, relatable stories within that story that I think are ripe for discussion and ripe for examination that I think in a big way that's that's a story I'd pick. But then I think there are also stories that um, maybe haven't gotten as much um, attention but I think are amazing pieces of storytelling and I would elect one that a close colleague and friend um, formerly from the ABC, Ivan Omani, did with Dan Box as a um, as a vodcast for the Australian. The Zach Greaves. The Zach story, which um, for those of you who don't know, uh, it was a story out of the Northern Territory four or five years ago now where a group of young men, sort of 1920-ish, Conspired to murder the very violent stepfather of one of the boys, for on on the mother's at the mother's request, the three boys go to do it. And on the night, Zach Grieve uh, says, "I can't do it," and and pulls out and doesn't get in the car and go with the other boys who do kill the man and dump his body somewhere. But when the trial comes, uh, they're all charged. The trial comes. Zach goes away for longer. Than the other two boys, even though he wasn't, he didn't enact the murder, and he wasn't there when it happened. So, and that's all to do with um, with the way that the law runs in in the Northern Territory, um, and and mandatory sentencing. And they examined that story in a way that was both visually compelling, and it was a, it's a story of great injustice, and they told it with great verve and compassion and and flair, and really, I thought it was a really astonishing piece of journalism
4: all Great stories, I think you'd agree. Um, the reason, and I want to come back to what you raised, Caroline, is that I was wondering if someone would raise the Barnaby Joyce matter. Um, because at all levels of media, uh, everyone every day clicked the who cares moment. <laughs> it had a moment of someone ringing up, ah, oh, who cares? But it would, it's like everyone had a switch every day that they just went, Enough, Enough. And there are also elements of uh, Donald Trump as president, Enough, Enough. People have a click and they've had enough. But with the stories about Barrowville, um, and particularly the sensitive storytelling, those stories tend to have a longer life. Is there is there a value in stories a longer life that aren't getting a bigger spotlight on them at the moment? Uh, is there a value in continuing to tell yeah,
2: them? Well, obviously
4: a value, but how do we continue the value? Because obviously the Barnaby story sells papers, it, it makes the talk back alive. It, it keeps television shows talking. But a genuine story of the Barraville murders well, has been going for an extraordinarily long time. And as you yeah. mentioned
2: well, the problem a with Barraville, I think, was um, times have caught up with Barraville. So at the time that the three children went missing, there weren't obvious links between all of them because one was very much older. Clinton Speedy was, I think, 17, almost 18, and the other two were quite young, six and five. So there wasn't really a... a it didn't look like a serial killer because most of us imagine a serial killer to have the same kind of victim either college girls or prostitutes or whatever the case may be um so police were resisting the idea that this might be a serial killer and then over time it became apparent that clinton had beha- had perhaps become a victim because he had witnessed something now then the police started to think oh okay but the other thing that that has caught up with Barreville is the idea that that dan got across so beautifully which was that if you had three white children missing from Muji, Dubbo, Bondi, where I'm from, you would never hear the end of it. It would be it would be a police presence like you would not believe. And yet this this just didn't seem to attract the same attention. So the idea of um, the injustices faced by Aboriginal people in the face of law and order has caught up with Barrell. So sometimes you need you need time. And that has also been true of the spate of um, killings of homosexuals, of gay men in Sydney. It looks like there were now more than 50 that were never reported as part of a campaign to throw gay men off clifftops in the 1970s. Um, some of them were judged to be a suicide. Others were thought to be lovers in, in quarrels. And, but now it looks like it was a systematic campaign to, to bash and kill gay men. And time has caught up with that story too. So sometimes you just need an arc of time. Um, the Barnaby story. I think it was fascinating for for different groups of people for different reasons. The the public found it fascinating for for one reason or not, but the media was intensely interested in this story because so many of them knew it knew about it and didn't report it. And so it had a lot of a lot of what you're seeing is um, soul searching. A lot of what you're seeing is journalists trying to catch up. They feel bad about the fact that they didn't report it, especially not before the election, when you really had a right to know why didn't they report it. That That's what you're seeing there.
4: And that brings me to, I guess, one of the most sensitive points of this week, which has been uh, the resignation of Emma Fusar as MP. Now, a shorter time frame, and journalists this week seem to have uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, felt like well, we're not going to allow Barnaby to happen again and to get in quicker, but then there has been high criticism of the op- opportunity that Emma Husser has not had the opportunity to think through things or answer allegations. Have we jumped too quickly for Emma Husser? And I'll probably open that to Kate. Well.
3: I I would say one of the, from the outside, not having any inside knowledge on this at all, but from my observations as a reader of the news, I would also say the difference with the Emma Husser case is that there's been... Much more furious and fast leaking from within the Labor Party against her. <laughs> They're so bad, aren't Wouldn't they? You think? <laughs> they are real haters
2: <laughs> in that party. So yeah.
3: <laughs> I would say uh, where the initial story that came out seemed to to be all about Emma and her behaviour towards staff and her bullying of staff, and that seemed to be the only story for about ten days. Then suddenly there was this second sort of download of a completely which is sort of doubled down on that with the sort of the Sharon Stone moment. And so I think uh, the Emma Hussar story has moved a lot faster because it has been fed in a way that the background players in the Barnaby story were less willing or prepared to do.
2: Well, because they had more to lose, right? So they were the, the, yeah. the, the National Party was facing an election in New England, so they had the potential loss of a seat. So they were not going to leak against him. Whereas Emma, they don't mind leaking against because there are a number of people in the Labor Party who want that seat. They want Lindsay and they want her out. So they're quite happy to do it. But I think what you said is really astute. I think that's really clever that absolutely there is no way before Barnaby, no way would the media have put on the record an allegation that a woman has gone into a parliamentary meeting without her underwear on, flashed the men in the room with a child present No way. The risk of defamation would have been so high. Mm. And also just basic decency to to not put on the record something that is unsourced, unverified, unverifiable and denied Mm. by three of the four people in the room. Mm. I think it was absolutely because of Barnaby. It was the media thinking we are not going to be accused of hiding this stuff again.
4: The other part about these stories is that um, certain media... Champion certain situations and and I guess causes or, or stories. Um, there is a growing, it's not a divide, but there are stories that the Australian will go first at, that the ABC will go behind on, or, or the ABC may go forward in the Australian. But is that causing a problem in storytelling? And I'd, I'd like to open that to the three of you in in regard to a perceived a perceived difference of audience for the Australian versus the ABC is, is something which is popped up this week in regard to Emma Husar is as the main criticism the abc was behind on that story however the australian was actually rather
2: forward on that story
3: see yeah. i'm i've taken my most of my news from that on buzzfeed i thought it was yeah. alice workman who had led the charge yeah. on, on that story so I, I don't know that i could talk about that in, rela- in regards to the husar story so much but i think I think sometimes, I mean, and also I lived and worked in the Northern Territory for about six and a half years and worked for the ABC there and Amos Aikman is the Australian's reporter up there. And I felt that there was a really, um, particularly in the subjects that that Amos and I were covering out of the Territory because that's an easier thing to contain in my mind to compare there would often be a push and pull between us on what we were reporting on, that if I broke a story, I would break a particular angle of it and then the next day Amos would be able to break a different angle on it and in a way we could push and pull each other forward and that was quite a healthy, that was how you might hope that a a media relationship might work. Um, I think getting into the sort of the political antagonism between the two organisations is just a whole other game that I don't really
2: engage with because I think it's
3: just... So yeah, that's, And
4: that's my point. Is it a fairy tale that actually doesn't exist?
2: No, the antagonism between the two organisations is real. There it's is antagonism real. and yeah. there is belligerence between the ABC and the Australian, 100%. Of course, you'd have to be mad to deny that. Yeah. Um, uh, why does it exist? It exists because the Australian has a different ideological point of view when it comes to the ABC. It believes that the organisation is bloated. It believes the taxpayers' money would be better spent elsewhere it believes that the ABC is outside its remit when it, when it uh, does such things as set up the drum and opinion website. Why is the ABC involved in opinion? Why is the ABC set up an ABC Lite program now where they teach you how to boil pickles or whatever it is they're doing? This is not, this is not the job of the ABC. This is the job of, of commercial media. And that antagonism absolutely exists. And, and, and it should exist. It should exist. We, should li- we live in, we live in um, a democracy and everyone is entitled to their point of view, and it would be crazy, crazy for us to sit here and say, "Well, there can be no criticism of the Australian, and there can be no criticism of the ABC. There can be criticism of both."
0: Yeah, but I can, want to know,
3: yeah, play the ball. Yeah.
2: How do you play the ball can on that, not the, the ball, person, James? Because I think terrible. that's what happens too often. Well, that is. I mean, that is the. Ball. Yeah. I'm not. I don't criticize any individual. No, no no, no, no. But that's. that's no, I think yeah. I
1: think that's certainly fair. And um, cheekily, like being in particularly satire programs, we have. Uh, the advantage of, like, we don't consider ourselves as, as burnt in the ABC. We're kind of on the side, we're the peanut gallery. We're not doing any of the hard work, so
2: that's not true. My my
1: personal view is, when things like that happen, I stand on the side like a third grade and go fight, fight, fight. <laughs> so I, I want these things to blow up. It's great. I'm a comedian, not a journalist. I don't need to make friends. Like
4: well, it's it brings fun. it brings us to a point, and one that I've discussed uh, a bit is satire has become a big way of our storytelling for the past ten years. Australia has been doing satire for a, a very long time, and perhaps. We're well-worn. We've had things like the Mavis Bramston show uh, to reflect political opinion through to things like the weekly. Um, but you have swung up the middle that it's become a strength now that the John Oliver, the Stephen Colbert style of approach yep. of getting our attention about certain matters. How, how has that swung up the middle between, the I guess, those big pillars of, of traditional storytelling?
1: Well, we rely heavily on traditional storytelling, both like in-house, like The Weekly has uh, two or three journals working on any time, and they are fantastic. Uh, and so we lean on them a lot, And but we also lean on traditional media. for um, Even for the basic format of how we put the show together, uh, Charlie will uh, not deliver new information, or at least we try and avoid him delivering new information we want. The clips and and bits of other journalism to do the talking. We're the spotlight. We're not the substance. And that's we. There's this almost this view of satire, particularly in that purpose when you're trying to take someone through a story that I we think of it almost as like a treat. Like if you read something very boring. I promise I'll make you laugh at the end of it. <laughs> and then maybe you'll read one more boring thing and in five minutes we'll have energy policy down. No, like, no. It's, it, it feels like we are um, at our strength. And the stuff that I have done personally that I like the most is the stuff that is pointing to not great journalism but also just great social work, work on the ground, people actually doing things. I think um, satire can get in trouble when it tries to be uh, – You know, the ever-present, omniscient voice saying, here's how you should act and should behave and everything of the like. I think it's at its strongest when it is just helping people to engage with issues that, frankly, you care about. You do care, and that's why you're interested in watching this at all. But they're hard to get into. These things are difficult. You don't have time to read every report that comes out about energy policy. You have other things to do, and <laughs> it's not your job. Energy policy is fascinating. What are you talk about?
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also, I think satire can, and particularly this kind that you do, can say so much in in such a tiny amount of time. So, Hopefully. and also beautifully. So the other night they had on uh, Barnaby Joyce because he was promoting his book, and Charlie Pickering who needs privacy, privacy. (laughs) and Charlie Pickering presented him with a with a miniature bus and said, Here, Barnaby, you can throw your whole family under this (laughs) one. And I mean, like in in just one sentence, has said what columns and columns of (laughs) of reporters have tried to say.
1: I will say this about that interview.
2: It was great. I cannot
1: believe they let him do it. It is the day. I mean, I guess the publisher, whoever's putting out this, I'm going to say without reading it, probably terrible book. (laughs) This book where I know the most interesting story in more detail than I want to, but it's a book (laughs) now. Um, He he was putting this out and we didn't have a lot of notice on it, but it was like licking your lips. Have You've seen the show? (laughs) You're not going to like this. And we'll do it to you, but don't come into our den.
2: And how does the mainstream media come close to that kind of commentary (laughs) in such a short (laughs) and immediate and blissful? It was blissful to see.
4: And in that week, Barnaby Joyce did 22 media interviews, and the most viewed has been The Weekly. It was something where um, it it brings me to another point, and that's. taking a story that starts uh, rather small and, and building it, how do we take a story from its smallest part but respect that the Australian or Four Corners or the weekly can tell it better when perhaps there has been little trickles before? When Caroline, when, as an associate editor, when do you step in?
2: My and- God, that's a fascinating question. It's a really brilliant question, actually, because it, it's quite true. I've heard, had a number of people um, from the bush tell us this week that we're really late to this drought story you know that and in fact one farmer i think from northern from northern queensland has written a piece mm. in the queensland have you seen that piece in the, yeah, queensland? Wrote in the
4: queensland farm observer to simply say that queensland has been living in this drought for four years i, I thought he that, said three but yeah, yeah maybe he
2: did say four and it was a compelling piece wasn't it it was like you know we've already had men take their lives up here we've we've seen people lose their farms the banks have been here mm. and cleaned us out we have shot all of our livestock so Welcome, Sydney Media.
4: Yeah, so how do you have that moment, though, where you are a massive publication, mm. um, and, and Kate, will get you to answer uh, oh. this as well, the Four Corners, the, the Australians, they're the ones, though, that usually do cause a Royal Commission or an investigation, right. however um, it might be. When's that moment that you see there's enough of a trickle to make a river?
2: Yeah, it's just impossible to know, isn't it? You have to trust your instincts and your reporters. And I guess I, I find that the criticism that the media was slow to the drought, Valid.
4: And in that regard, Kate, um, you worked for a very long time in the Domdale and in Aboriginal incarceration stories mm. in the Northern Territory. Now, the story that involved Dylan Al- Alcott.
3: Dylan Voller. Voller,
4: uh, well, sorry. Mm. Um, that story triggered bigger investigation. You've been working on that for some time. <laughs> How do you
3: So I, I, I was the first person to publish, um, to break the story that Dylan Voller was uh, strapped to a chair for almost two hours with a bag over his head. I got an interview, the only interview that's been done ever with the um, then Commissioner of Corrections um, who admitted on tape that it had happened but said that he'd only been um, hooded and strapped for about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then when I went back to him with the report that he had actually handed me in his office and I read the report, which he clearly hadn't, the report from his own department said that Dylan had been strapped to that chair with a hood on his head for almost two hours and he had then conceded that that was the case. Um, I... Did that as a TV and online report for the ABC uh, seven months before the Four Corners program and along with other uh, Northern Territory journalists, most of them from the ABC, um, we broke stories of the kids being told to eat bird poo in exchange for Snickers bars. Uh, I reported on kids who had been diagnosed with PTSD who were being held in, um, in their cell for 15 hours a day without any treatment so we had already reported on the gassing of the kids and there had been ages of reporting on it um, and it wasn't until uh, Four Corners, um, and they got the pictures. That's what made the difference. That was the big thing that made the difference was they, pictures that I'd been promised but was never given, um, they got the pictures and that was the breakthrough and people being able to see all of this. Uh, was what made the difference. Um, And I think when you were saying what is it that turns the trickle into a flow, I think in my experience it's often just a particular journalist who takes an interest in a subject. I don't know if you see the same at the Australian, Carolyn, but often it'll just be one journo who's got a particular interest in in an area and they just turn their attention to it for a little bit longer than usual and something catches their eye and they decide to look at it closely and when they decide to look at it closely is when they discover that ABC Dubbo has been reporting on the Murray-Darling for the last five years and actually they've done some great, you know, interviews already and there's a whole heap of stuff there they can just jump on and put in front of more people or, you know, journalists in the Northern Territory have been reporting about this for two years and suddenly it just comes into view. So I don't know that there's necessarily um, a a trigger...
4: In regard to the middle there, James, yeah. satire um, relies on reaction. Mm-hmm. It's our, our internal reaction. Um, but where do you sit in, if something came to you that you were ready to break in the weekly, you say you've got journalists in there. Yeah. Where does satire sit on breaking and uncovering?
1: We have done like small moments of um, like details of stories or, or parts that we have to break. I think we can do it. Uh, it's possible. Uh, it's none of the comic strengths. Yeah, uh, there's a reason I've only lost Walkleys, but, um, <laughs> but I think like it's the, the systems there, and it's all the same tools as we would want to use. But also, a lot of the time when it comes to like, I was just thinking about what you were saying about you know the trickle and the flow. That um a lot of the joy of satire us again being the um you know the old man in the corner of the Muppet Show just saying everyone else is doing it bad without having to do it ourselves. <laughs> like we uh, um have this advantage of. Like, I see in the drought story this week that from the perspective of a show that does as much reporting stories as reporting about the media and how they report stories, that's a lot of fun to watch the the media suddenly, like for our purposes at least, a lot of fun to watch the media suddenly be like, oh, there's a drought. We all need to do something on Mm. this. And then when you start piecing apart the details, you find things like sunrise, saying, okay, technically the cash cow can't directly give money i know it's bad that we have the cash cow, and trying to work out some system when clearly the answer is you cook you kill and cook the cash cow when you give it to needy families (laughs) but um i find that interesting like that when suddenly the media has this incredible spotlight and i think that's what we get to play with as well because i think like when you're in that world you don't often think about like how strange it is when the circus comes to town like it's incredible when news is breaking. Like I you know, grew up in the Blue Mountains, there like news doesn't happen there unless it's awful and then really happening. Yes. Like, so it's one of those like it's it's this interesting balance for us. I like to watch how these things break themselves because it often shows it sh- it shows a, a, how how major media networks understand these issues themselves. Like that's how they reveal themselves. Sort of what direction when do you jump on a story when do you want to when it's a politician on either side of the spectrum who like as you mentioned before who wants to go first who's like oh we really want to take this person down mm. who's just jumping on because they think it's good for ratings does the today show have to do something because sunrise has to do something like yes. i find that oh my god absolutely <laughs> they're going to have Carl in and uber recorded just sledging the drought
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um,
4: Hero Takedown is one of the most terrifying forms of of journalism because you need to have it right. Um, The ABC and Fairfax this year uh, that are now facing some legal dramas, dramas, some very qualified dramas uh, about Craig McLaughlin, that you've got to have it right. Hero Takedown, if it's the right thing to do... Can I just get your thoughts without actually asking a question there on Mm on the three of you? Hero Takedown, we... We take this person who we hold above, something comes to your attention. How do you how do you address that?
3: It's the milkshake duck, isn't it, on tweet? That's what they call it, on Twitter, the mm-hmm. milkshake ducking. How long does it take for someone to go from a hero to zero and they say on Twitter it's come down to something like 12 hours? Or yeah, it's it's <laughs> like
1: the uh, the milkshake duck, to explain this term a little bit, is um, that the internet, it's a, by a person named Pixie Boat who's a cartoonist and it's... Um, The internet's all in love with this new duck that drinks milkshakes, the milkshake duck, and then five minutes later, we're sorry to inform you, the duck is racist.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which is the takedown. Yeah, exactly. Um, Look, I think it's one of our jobs, isn't it, as journalists to take down the sacred cows, but to do it responsibly, Mm. ideally, is that you've got your facts straight before you do it so that when the backlash inevitably comes, which it will if you're taking down a hero... You can stand your ground and very firmly say, well, the fa- I've got the facts straight, here they are, and make your own judgement. But but you've just got to know you've got the facts straight before you do it. And that usually involves some very good lawyers as well. Mm. Karen?
2: Oh, look, I'm a little uncomfortable about the Ben Robert Smith story um, because it has been doing the rounds for about six months and... Um, There are two versions of the story out today. If you read um, Fairfax Press, you will read that he was involved in an extramarital affair. He turned up at a a dinner with the Prime Minister with his mistress on his arm. She later suffered an incidence of domestic violence at his hands. The police had to be called. If you read The Australian, you will read that um, as a result of his experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq, he suffered um, mental health problems, which led to a break in his marriage from his wife, who he loves dearly. He spent um, some of that time in the company of a woman that perhaps he shouldn't have, but he was separated and he was he took her to a dinner and then suddenly she got very, very drunk and he felt very embarrassed and then they left the party and as they were leaving the party she fell down the stairs and the police were already there by the time he got to the bottom of the stairs because this was a dinner with the Prime Minister so there were police everywhere and he didn't, t- he didn't lay a glove on her. So there were two very different versions of the same story and where you fall down on where you where you you personally come down on that will depend a lot on your circumstances i mean do you believe that a man like ben robert smith suffered traumatic um stress syndrome from what happened to him do you believe that it's possible that he has had a marriage breakdown do you believe that it's possible that in The marriage breakdown he came upon a a woman and became engaged in a sexual relationship that kind of blew his mind for a while and left him feeling crazy if you believe those things then perhaps you believe the australian and if you don't then perhaps you believe fairfax so i'm never in the business of taking down a sacred cow i'm never in the business of tearing someone down um, because of the tall poppy syndrome if there is a story to be told then let's tell it but i think in both these instances today the stories are so completely different. Where is the nuance? Why does each paper have such a different version of the same story? Shouldn't both of those stories try to canvas the same territory? But
3: isn't that where the, fa- and that's where the facts come in, I guess, isn't it, is, is what, what the facts actually are? And I don't know. But. but why
2: does the Fairfax story not say that Ben Robert Smith denies that he was married at the time? I mean, their story says that he turned up for dinner with the Prime Minister brazenly with a woman who was not his wife Oh. who was his mistress, passed her off as an employee of Channel 7. I guess then, they say
3: that because that's what they've been told. But right, I don't know but where's it. his
2: denial? Where, where, like he's denying that. He's saying that oh. I was not married. My, my marriage had come under immense pressure and, and I was doing crazy things. Well, where's that? Where's that in the story? Yeah. And so if that's what he's publicly saying, which he is, oh. and he's been privately saying it for a while. So I feel that... Um, an ideological line has been drawn on this story and the media is on either side of it and that shouldn't ever happen. Our story should say that she alleges that she was involved in an incidence of domestic violence that night and their story should say he's arguing that he was not married at the time. But, in fact, you've got two completely oh, separate well, stories. Well,
4: apart. Uh, James, yep. hero takedown and the milkshake duck... Um, we take the example today, we take an actor like Kevin Spacey that had this enormous regard, Academy Award winner, and his career has uh, decimated over the past six months. Yeah. Where does the hero take down for satire?
1: Well, um, I think in general, like, let's be clear, I love a roast. I love to, like, <laughs> really enjoy doing that. But you have to understand what you're doing, why you're doing it and where you're aiming, what the point you're making is. To make someone laughable is one of the worst things you can do to them Mm. like to give them no regard in society is one of the most devastating things you can do so you have to understand how you're doing that what you're saying and why you're saying it um it's it's not like it it comes straight to what we're talking about of playing the ball that um what you're trying to say is not necessarily depending you know case by case but like this person isn't reprehensible this action is and you're trying to um, define those ethics of course, if the person commits that action, then mm. the line is a little fuzzy. But, um, yeah, I find it interesting. And there are moments, like, when I think about the spacey thing, you do have moments where you're wondering, like, I, I'm more worried about the industry that allowed him to rack up awards despite this behaviour mm. than I'm worried about like his behavior being exposed, uh, like ruining the nice image I had in my head of him. Like yeah. I liked House of Cards, but it's fine. Like if it's bringing an offender to justice, I will binge something else. <laughs> well,
2: somebody once told me about comedy, the line, the good line to keep in mind. You should always pick on someone who's got more power than you. Yeah.
1: Punch up is, yeah, tends that's, to which be I determined.
2: think it's a great, it's a great line to live by. Yeah. Cause when you're picking on people who have less power than you, then it's, and it's
1: it's bullying. bullying. It's bullying, and it's just not fun either. Part of the fun of being like, of, you know, making jokes about the government or whatever is that <laughs> in a heartbeat they could step on me. Like <laughs> that's the joy you're
4: going. And up the Australian and
2: would like, come to your f- rescue at the ABC. <laughs> 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 um, I,
4: I, I'd like to hear some questions if you can. So if I could get you to raise your hand,
5: I am a strong fan of the ABC. Um, And when I grow up, I want to be Fran Kelly, but not have to get up so early in the morning (laughs) for the Radio National Breakfast Program. It breaks my heart to think that the ABC is always a football. And when we want to perhaps distract attention from something else, we'll sell off the ABC. I wonder, as ABC employees, whether you're able to make a comment about this constant uh, push to take away the national broadcaster, which I think many of us rely on for what we say, regardless of of differences sometimes with uh, the Australian or other commercial um, news outlets, we rely on you for what we think is honest information.
3: Well, Kate's actually technically a former employee. Uh, well, yeah, I'm technically so. not employed by the ABC at the moment, so Go I guess I can. <laughs> um, look, I've will also reveal my age now by saying that I have worked at the ABC um, in various capacities on and off for at least 20 years and this is this current if you want to say that there's a current attack on the ABC it's not the first one that I've um, lived and worked through and uh, yes morale hits rock bottom Uh, yes people uh, get disgruntled yes like other parts of the media industry like newspapers have been through already, people are losing jobs and finding it hard to pay their mortgage. Um, and that is very distressing to see on a person-by-person level. But I think it is important to keep in context that the entire media landscape and every journalist in it around the world is going through this type of restructuring and this type of shaking up at the moment. Um, I I regard the ABC very highly um, I do think in the past, you know, the the charge that the ABC has been bloated. It's certainly an enormous bureaucracy to try and get anything done in. Um, There has been room for tightening the straps and and making it work harder. I think that point has just about been reached. Um, But then I'm just a journo trying to get a story out. I'm not one of the people running the books and I've never had to run a budget as an executive producer. I don't know what that's like. So I can't speak with great authority on that sort of front. Um, I would say that the ABC has an incredibly strong culture internally that um, it would take a nuclear war to destroy. Um, So I would hold faith in the ABC's ability to survive, but I would also not become complacent about standing up for it when you feel like it's under attack because you not only maintain the morale of the people within the organisation and help them to keep Fighting for for the national broadcaster, but you your defence is very much needed on a political level. Okay. If that's how you feel, um,
1: as someone currently writing on a show, I don't have any opinion on this. I've never even <laughs> <laughs> thought about it. But as a what an interesting idea, um, <laughs> <laughs> what I would say in general is uh, if if the ABC budget can be uh, uh, visualised through let's say a humble employee's attempts to find a goddamn fork <laughs> in any of the lunchrooms, I think we might be at the bricks. So.
4: Well, um, unless you have a toaster in your office, we're not committed toasters because we keep yeah. setting off firearms. So, um, Yeah.
3: Can oh, I just, yeah, you might. just tell a little story? Liz Jackson, who I'm sure all of you will remember, who recently passed away, I was working with her at Four Corners. Liz was famously very smart but very vague. She once put a piece of banana bread in the microwave and put it on for what she thought was 20 seconds but was actually 20 minutes. She got the entire Ultimo building evacuated.
4: <laughs> oh, I, uh, yeah. I said No toasters
3: or microwaves ever since.
4: And I, sadly, too, uh, fired up an invector oven at Wollongong and uh, not only caused the building to be evacuated, but my chief of staff decided to go down and switch off the fire alarm and therefore got in trouble for switching off the fire alarm off the fire brigade, and the ABC does pride itself on its workplace health and safety. <laughs> so to say that I had an interesting week was it uh, was a long week. Um, in answer to your question, I, there are some questions I can answer for being employee of the ABC. Um, we're not infallible. Uh, we have our faults we have to accept that we have our faults we have to accept that we go we go into work every day like every person should go into work every day and say we want to do the best job that we can there are days we go home and say maybe we didn't do the best job that we can but that exists for all all avenues of media um there are lots of questions about how the ABC is received in a regional area or in a, People say, well, we rely on the ABC in the bush. That's absolute. But people rely on the local newspapers in the bush. People rely on 2MG in the bush. People rely on all sorts of things because it's their media it belongs to them. So I'm very protective of the ABC, but I'm protective of media in general. Um, I, I'm devastated when I hear jobs lost. And I think Caroline could speak too that... The Australian has this Nine and Fairfax merger coming together. Sure. It's, this is one big, monster's not the word I'm looking for maybe, one big organisation ready to take on another. And, and how's that in oh, well, your look, just
2: Just firstly on the ABC, mm. the ABC is engaged, in my view, in a suicide mission. The ABC is, for whatever reason, determined to attract the kind of criticism that it is getting, and I don't understand that. I don't understand how the ABC can, on one hand, on one day, say we are down to the bone, we don't have another cent left to cut and then hire Peter Fitzsimons to do a Four Corners special. I don't understand that. When you have hundreds of journos who are perfectly capable of doing that story, why do you then go and hire a celebrity guy to do it? And then he says, oh, well, I donated my fee. Well, I'm sorry, that's not your fee. That's my money. That's taxpayers' money that you spent doing that. And I don't understand why the ABC is engaged in launching ABC Life this week, which is full of stories like how to uh, put pickles in jars. I don't understand that. The ABC should be engaged in rigorous journalism of the type that you find on 730 and Four Corners, an Australian story, and it should be involved in radio services for the bush, which are absolutely essential, and particularly in times of drought and fire, and it should not be mucking around with opinion sites like the drum because if you get into those areas, and there's also the problem that the ABC leans left, and everybody knows it. And so if you're if you're refusing all the time to acknowledge that you lean left, refusing to do anything to redress that balance, you will be criticised. But you can't then come for the critics, you have to come for the ABC and say, why do you do these things? Because your existence is at risk. Because if you continue down this path of getting into lifestyle journalism and fluffy nonsense and the kinds of shows that are not really in your remit and having too many reporters with too many opinions and too much on the left wing, the government will cut your funding. And that's what none of us wants to happen.
4: With the Nine and Fairfax merger now, because that's the next big thing, big shake-up. There's still uh, the ACCC to clear the way on, on that matter and there may be some questions. But
2: how uh, that been- That's going through. That's just... Yeah. Yeah. How
4: is that being received, though, and, and and where's the thought on print journalism now that this will happen?
2: Well, I mean, I started my career at The Age in Melbourne and, uh, I mean, I sat there and I watched Greg Highwood, the man I've known for probably 30 years, stand up and say, the name of the new company will be Nine. And it'll have plenty of Fairfax DNA. And I just thought, that is the, the saddest and really most disgraceful thing I've heard for a long time. They killed that company. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a rigorous, proud, independent, key part of our democracy, and they killed it. And I just, I felt wretched about it. And what will news do? I think that news, in all likelihood, will now pursue a merger, probably with Seven, If we can get it off the ground, Rupert has uh, has landed in Australia this week. I'm having dinner with him on Thursday. (laughs) So I guess I'll try to find out what I can. It seems impossible for us to not pursue a merger because nine is now newspapers, television, radio, online. How can we possibly compete? And unless you want another media company to fail, that's the future.
4: Any other questions? So uh, microphone there in the front row and then up to the
2: middle row. Look, just on that point of this incredible uh, media merger, we're moving to a situation in Australia now where we're going to have one of, the, if not the most concentrated media ownership in the world, really. Um, and my fear is that really high quality investigative journalism, that's going to be a, a huge casualty. Of this i really i i, I wonder if, if that is the case if you if you share that I'm really interested to know your thoughts on that
4: one one two three go
2: <laughs> no, well i mean i would say obviously that uh, we, we mustn't fall into the trap of assuming that only fairfax does quality journalism hmm. because a lot of the stories that we've mentioned today barraville and zach grieve and the teacher's pet and indeed the barnaby joyce story was broke were broken by news limited journalists yeah. and and New Zealand has a long and proud history, including Dr. Death of uncovering that story, including the Hanif story was broken by New Zealand. We have a very proud history of breaking great stories, and so do Channel 9. Anyone remember the Keating Piggery yarn that he's still upset about? <laughs> that was broken by Channel 9's Paul Lynam. So there is a there is a culture of good journalism at all the organisations, and the ABC is absolutely outstanding. They're, they're way ahead of the pack in terms of the yarns that they've done. I don't worry too much about that. I, I do worry... My main worry when it comes to, to journalism is is, is not, it's not to do with the concentration of journalism. It's it's more to do with competitive pressures that won't exist if there aren't more organisations. Like, I love the fact that I'm in competition with Fairfax because it keeps me hungry.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I do worry about, like, media ownership, um, but for the exact reason that I want a lot of perspectives on this, I think, like, Australia already has remarkably small and remarkably insular media scene and I can't see the merger doing anything like to help that. Certainly. And more than anything, I like reading that paper. Like that's that's how I come into this fraud. Like that's I'm a fan of this stuff. I like look at it from the other side. Like I would like I would like to read that paper. I would like to read the Australian. I would like to get as much information we have and can possibly have. And I, I understand this is like the most challenging time in history, I would say, for this, mm. for um, media. And and it's no one really, we're all navigating blind. Um, I think it's a shame. I think we'll miss it.
3: Okay. Um, I think the greatest threat in terms of diversity of the merger is, is losing the regional newspapers that go with mm. Fairfax Stable. Mm. Um, I think already that the... You know, I've worked in the metros and I've worked in the regions and I know how hard it is to get the attention that you want when you're in the regions for really important stories and often the place that you have to turn to for that really detailed attention and understanding is your local paper Um, and a lot of those have been owned by Fairfax up until now. I worry about what will happen when they disappear. Um, I wouldn't worry about the investigative stuff. I I think... it's something that um, any media organisation that does it holds as a bit of the jewel in the crown. Um, I think Channel Nine doesn't have a great history in it. It doesn't have a great um, short-term history in that since they lost the Sunday program. I think they've lost a lot of their oomph in that sort of space. So what about um, that great
2: story they did in Beirut?
1: Yeah. Which one? <laughs> you, know, I'm gonna, I'm you know that kidding. entirely, <laughs> entirely successful operation where no one pistol whipped
2: yeah, anyone? Yeah, yeah, that,
3: that no one ended up in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I, I, I don't. That's, Channel Nine's not where I look to anymore. I would have once for Sunday. It's not where I would look for my investigative stuff. Um, there are some amazing investigative journo's at Fairfax who uh, will either get um, scooped up in some fashion by Us? by exactly by news or by the ABC. There are already a lot of them, like Nick McKenzie, who's been doing co-pros with Four Corners forever, and Four Corners has been trying to get Nick on staff for years, so this might be the, you know, the thing that pushes him overboard. I don't know, but I wouldn't worry too much about the investigative stuff because it will always happen.
4: Why shouldn't the ABC be allowed to cover the sorts of programs
1: and issues that they cover? I mean, there's a large uh, percentage of the population who do not want to watch 7, 9, or 10, and Enjoy getting
4: uh, all of their television coverage from the ABC or the radio coverage. So, if you're going to start saying what they can and can't cover, we're going to cut out things like Gardening Australia
1: because someone believes in the ABC
4: <laughs> should be covering me. a program like that.
5: <laughs>
1: or The Weekly
2: with Charlie <laughs> Pickett. <Piccolo. laughs> Yeah. No, that's not what I mean at all. I mean, I'm not talking about individual programs like Gardening Australia, one of my mum's favourite shows. What I'm talking about is what they do, that it's against the law. It's against the law. They are not allowed to be involved in political commentary. They are meant to be fair and balanced. That is the law. That is part of the Broadcasting Act and that is part of the ABC Charter. They are not allowed to do what they are currently doing. That's not me saying that. That's Parliament saying that and they continually step over that line, the drum, the Drum Online, not the not the TV show that you all see now, but the Drum Online, which was a website full of ABC reporters spouting opinions. It doesn't exist anymore. No, it doesn't exist anymore. No, exactly. And the years. reason it doesn't exist anymore was because it was against the law and it was a I really dumb know idea. I don't that
3: that's directly true, though. I don't think that they were charged and it was shut down because no, it was no, against true. the char- law. <laughs> no, so. no, that's
2: right. But it's one of those situations where you think to yourself as, a, as somebody who loves the ABC, who's and a consumer the of the ABC TV. and goes on the drum all the time, why would you do this? Why would you step deliberately into areas where you know you're not allowed to be? Because all that does is set fire to the argument all over again. What are we funding this for?
1: But then I always get into the, the worry with that. Like um, uh, ABC Life, for example, that has taken a beating today for daring to tell you how to pickle something. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think that the, the two things we are simultaneously told about the ABC is that it is not relevant to actual people and any attempt to become relevant is a waste of money. Oh, that, like, this is imitating some of the most popular websites on our mediascape, and we hate it because it's coming from there. I'm, I'm sure, like, the, look, the pickle story might not win the first a the spot on the Walkley panel. But <laughs> hell, maybe it does. Maybe there's a category, best pickling. But I think that there, there is a space for it to try and enter these new spaces and stay relevant in a media age where we're all playing catch-up.
2: But then, how can you then argue that you're down to the bone? Like, how can you then argue that you you've got a billion dollars a year, a thousand reporters, four hundred radio stations? You're down to the bone. You cannot survive on a dollar less than you have, and then launch a site where you teach people how to pickle pickles or pickle. mean, because then you then you're then the first thing that the people on the right are going to do. The first thing that conservatives are going to do is say. We're going to cut your budget because you've got no business replicating the websites that are out there. In there, but thousands. so what you're asking
3: us to do is to program based on what we expect the political reaction to be. And when I say we, I don't even work there anymore. <laughs> you
2: know, but, so,
3: but that's how
2: deep the cuts is. We as in Australians, yeah. One. But One. so,
3: so I don't think a I don't think a national broadcaster can broadcast according to political um, debate, to, to political blowback. And the other thing I would say, just in terms of the the sort of the the drum being taken off and sort of the political lean. Every time the ABC has been investigated for bias, the reports have come back saying that that bias has not been proven to exist.
2: Nobody believes that.
3: That's what every report has come back to say.
2: I... Nobody <laughs> believes that. There isn't a, you, you could not point to a single program on the ABC that leans to the right. You couldn't. You just couldn't. In, in, Except
3: in. the
2: weekend. <laughs> Man, <laughs> the <Van> Stone's program.
3: <laughs> we
4: will we come. To, we've got another really question, and I, I'll, I'm not trying to be the umpire here. <laughs> ABC Life has um, been an interesting uh, point of discussion yeah. with the ABC this week. Harky debate. I love Harky debate. It is actually the conversations we love to have. So thank you for asking those questions. Thank you to our panelists today, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the. festival.
0: If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgie, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney. You can also find Rights for Women and Rights for Festivals in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can keep up with all the latest news, episodes and festivals at our Facebook page, Writes for Festivals. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals.